Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, American Tour of Misguided Medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. What a pleasure it is to be back with you again. Oh, thank you, Justin. It's, uh, been, it's been some busy weeks. You know, I last week we weren't here, and honestly, folks, we just needed a break. You know, mm-hmm. it's a stressful gig, podcasting. Um, probably one of the most stressful that there is, and it's really important that you take the time that you need for yourself as a podcaster, I really believe that. Um, and taking that time is so important and undervalued. Now, Justin, I agree with you that, and that's true for everyone, not just yeah. that's why that's podcasters, why. I suppose. But people wonder why Roman Mar- Mars hired that second Roman Mars mm-hmm. to do ninety nine percent invisible, so the first Roman Mars or Ro Prime, as mm-hmm. he's known, could spend more time with his family, and that is why. I mean, it, it's just a very stressful gig. Um. I don't. While I agree with you and everything you're saying, except for everything. I don't. Except for I don't think that Roman Mars hired a second Roman Mars. Roe Prime. I don't. I don't what? think that that's accurate. But okay. I, I honestly, I haven't researched it, so I'm not going to say definitively. I okay. try not to. You know, I try to stay in my lane. But uh, we we didn't do an episode. I would say not so much because podcasting no, <laughs> had no. become overwhelming. Um, I think my other, like, my side gig, I guess, at this point. Side gig? Is it my side gig? It's a weird way of putting it, but well, sure, yeah, I'll, so, I'll allow it. Well, it's very, I don't know if everyone knows this, just I assume everyone does, but maybe this this is like a doctor thing. A lot of doctors have side gigs these days. Hmm. A lot of, and that's what they call them, like, They're on I do medicine, but my side gig is... Etsy. Etsy, or like, Etsy I charms. sell... MLMs? I'm an MLM. <laughs> I'm an MLM. <laughs> I got. I fell into an MLM. <laughs> there are a lot of doctors with side gigs yeah. uh, who are. I don't know if they're trying to off ramp. Some of them are. Some of them are trying to find a way to off ramp for medicine. Um, not, not all of them. Obviously, they're just trying to make a little extra, extra dough, pay back those student loans. But um, I guess in my case, is medicine my side gig? I guess. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. know. It doesn't feel that way because I identify, and this is all playing into what we're going to talk about. I identify so strongly as a as a doctor, not just as like my job, but as like who you are, who I am. Right. Um, and I wouldn't say that I identify with the title podcaster in that same deep Well, that's only because it feels way. terrible to say, and I've never said it to <laughs> anyone with a straight face. You know what I've got, you know what I've recently been doing and trying to get away with? I'm an entertainer. <laughs> 
I'm entertainer. I'm, I'm an entertainer. Like that's what I put on like forms and stuff. It's that like, what's what your you job? I that's, don't know. I make boner ghost jokes, boner ghost jokes, and horses and stuff. That's what I have to tell people when they're like, "What does your husband do?" Every, actually, if you and if you're in medicine, you might know this. The question I get is not, "What does your husband do?" The question I get is, "Is your husband a doctor as well?" That is always the way the question is phrased. I am uh, honorary doctor. Uh, and then I say, "No, he's an entertainer." <laughs> <laughs> he's a clown he's a clown for money thank you for asking I'm very ashamed of my clown husband he's not a doctor I'm not ashamed of my clown husband I love my clown husband there's a bumper sticker I'm not ashamed of my clown husband so uh, I was <laughs> it was a lot and I couldn't get it I, c- I just couldn't get it done I couldn't get it all done yeah you had f- and we can't t- it's funny you can't talk about any of it uh, very little honestly with me because of all the different hippo stuff but um the it's been a stressful one i could tell Mm -hmm. um stressful couple weeks so i started thinking you know i should do a podcast about physician burnout because we talk about that a lot and i i I just want to get out in front of this i i put this all together before the vox article about physician mental health and and wellness just came out that that's um, very that to me whenever i see something like that start to happen where like a lot of different sources are coming to the same idea at the same time like i think that you are often at the cusp of some actual actual change or recognition or whatever because people are trying to to well, talk more about it i i hope so because the i wanted to get into like where did this term come from and where did the idea um, I mean, I think we all know about the idea of burnout in general, but like as it applies to physicians, it's very buzzy. Um, and I think it was reaching sort of a fever pitch right before the pandemic, but it all got put on hold because pandemic. And we needed all of our healthcare providers to be well because they had to do this work. So I think we all just simultaneously decided they're fine. <laughs> and put this concern on the back burner but now that things are starting hopefully to at least we can see the end we know how this should play out we, we're starting to see I mean, a light and knock on wood um then i think this idea is resurfacing like hey by the way we were all super um burnout and and not in a good place before this started and can you imagine how a lot of us are feeling now i think it's the conversation so the concept of workplace burnout is generally a, a pretty new concept. Like this is not, I mean, historically, yes, everybody needs to work and play. I mean, that that's not, you know, that's a, it'd be weird to say, no, everybody always enjoyed toiling away for hours and hours with no, <laughs> with no fun. But no, like everybody's always needed to find a balance. But the idea of like specifically burnout and especially for, for physicians or, you know, a lot of the work was done with physicians, but healthcare providers in general, you could you could say for a lot of this. Um, the word sort of describes what it is, right? Burnout. It's burnout. Yeah. yeah. You lose energy. You have no more power. You cease to function. Um, you can't do your jobs, whatever your roles are in society, whatever your things are in life. Be a happy human. You can't do any of it. It's your burnout. The term itself, the way we use it now. The you know in common use probably mm-hmm. dates back to 1974. A psychologist named Dr. Herbert Herbert Freudenberger, who came to the U.S. He immigrated here from Germany in 1933 to escape the Nazis, and he worked his way through school uh, and college. He was he was a hard worker. He always had to. He was I think he was um, 
I think he experienced homelessness for a while. You know, he, he worked really hard to get through school and college. And then finally, while he was studying, he ran into Maslow, Dr. Maslow, who created, you've probably heard of- Hierarchy of needs. Exactly, a psychologist. Um, and from him was directed into the study of psychology, uh, was very interested in that and wanted to kind of, was a protege of his, wanted to follow in those footsteps. And he became a leader in his field and one of the first- people to really address and work with addiction as a disease. So he began this work and he decided, you know, this was also as we're moving into like the 70s, we're getting into the free clinic movement, the idea that the revolutionary idea that everybody should have access to healthcare, which we've always wanted, but I think we all know is not true. But um, he started working at these free clinics so that he could have more, um, hands-on, one-on-one experience with people who have addiction, who have substance use disorders, and, you know, volunteer there and work with them directly and sort of grow that body of knowledge, uh, you know, our understanding. And this is where he kind of started coming up with this idea, this concept of the word burnout. Uh, There was an interview with his daughter where she said that his explanation for it is that sometimes he would see people who had long-term addiction who just seemed to sort of like fade away, sort of be vacant from themselves, from their from their person. Um, and he would watch them stand against a wall holding a lit cigarette and not moving and not smoking it until the the thing just burned out in their hand. Mm. Burnout. Burnout. And this oh. is this was sort of the inspiration for this word, and the the reason that he probably recognized it so readily is that Dr. Freudenberger would go on to experience burnout and talk about it um, quite uh, quite intensely. He was working all day in his hospital job and all night in his free clinic volunteering work, or vice versa, all day in the volunteering, all night at the hospital. So he was pulling long, hard days. He was exhausted. He was unhappy. And a day came where there was a family vacation, and he he could not get out of bed. That is the way it is described. He literally could not lift his body out of bed. And the way he uh, described it was that, he, I don't know how to be readily joyful. Now, you can tell that he wasn't at Disney because Disney has several services for parents who can't get out of bed. They can take, <laughs> get Mickey's magical lift, and for sixty nine ninety nine, Mickey will come to your room and put you in a sedan carried by four chips uh, mm-hmm. Of Chippendale fame, and just carry you about. There's no need to get out of bed. Which Chippendale? What? <laughs> Which Chippendale? There's fame? four Chippendale. There's four chips. Okay. It's like, but Chip and Dale, not Dale Chip and Dale is not. Dale is above this work. He's not going to carry a tired parent okay. in a sedan. Chip, okay. though, he needs the scratch, so he'll do it. <laughs> is it the Chip from Rescue Rangers? No, it's the Chip in his new iridescent outfit oh. uh, for the 50th anniversary, beginning October 1st. Because so. if it's the Chip from Rescue Rangers in that coat and that hat. Yeah, then yeah. we can all, then, yeah. Yeah. I'm more of a Dale. Is he bringing gadgets? Be honest that I'm more of a Dale. No. I, I think I'm more of a Dale. He does wear Hawaiian shirts. The CSA, yeah. okay. Uh, anyway, so I'm I, a I really- I'm Dale in the streets and a Monterey Jack in the sheets. <laughs> That's how I like to think I'm just gadget all the way. So he began to, and I really like this about Dr. Freudenberger. I feel like uh, when I read this about him that I would, um, I understood it on a deep level. He began to talk into a tape recorder about his feelings and then play it back so that he could sort of psychoanalyze 
himself, like to be his own psychologist. The worst ways of doing it. I mean, honestly, that's the only tool you have is, is being able to. He was a very good you know, psychologist. Analyze your own thoughts. Yeah. And, and he, so he would talk as if he was the patient and then listen back to his own thoughts. And, um, and I, I, I <laughs> that, that resonates with me on a deep level. Yeah. Uh, so, and he, he realized that he was experiencing burnout. That the same this this idea that you can't be happy, you can't experience joy, you just can't anymore. Um, he he it was experiencing it. So he wrote a book called Burnout: The High Cost of High Achievement. And by 1981, this book was a big deal. Like he went on Oprah and Donahue and all the shows to discuss it, and a lot of people were talking about it. Was very buzzy this this book, this idea mm-hmm. of of burnout, and especially in someone like himself who was a high achiever who worked nonstop was recognized as being, you know, brilliant and capable and all of this stuff. And eventually he would find joy for himself. Um, I'm not really clear. It, it's not really like <laughs> he didn't put a case study out there. So I don't know exactly how he found a way to deal with the what he thought of as like this response to extreme stress, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it wasn't like a treatment for everybody. It wasn't like there was one protocol that was developed that everybody could. It was just this is a thing that exists. He found a way to live with it and work with it and, and find joy again, um, find happiness again. Um, but this book really put the idea out there. And in the 80s, it really took off. Mm-hmm. That is really where you see like the idea of burnout. This is the birth of this concept. And I think it makes sense because if you think of the 80s, not just in medicine, but in the whole especially in the U.S., mm-hmm. the 80s were when everybody was scrambling for more, you know, better. Um, th- there was this disproportionate amount of time that everyone was spending trying to climb that ladder and achieve some sort of ultimate career success. I don't know. They all had those popped collars and those convertibles. It's a, it's a very self-interested decade. Yes. Uh, which I think if you're – if your religion, if your faith system is is self-based, how do you say, like, I have done enough today. I have achieved enough today. I've gone high enough in my career. You know, I've I've achieved enough. Mm-hmm. If, when, you're, when your religion is you, I think it's very hard to, to see past that. And it was also a time where in the name of, like, gender equality at the time, and again, I'm not saying this is gender equality, but at the time, the concept of gender equality was, hey – you can do this too, ladies. You can have it all. Yeah, you do just all have the to... do all the other stuff you're doing. Right, but you can also work your butt off trying to fight your way up the career hierarchy and work twice as hard as your male colleagues to achieve the same successes. Exactly, and so like everybody was was intensely trying to have it all and do it all. But and so at the same time came in this the the idea of work life balance that came into the picture. So, but okay, but no, don't now don't forget you got a family. You got to relax. Yeah, you got to right. have. You got to work hard, play hard, right? Yeah, and so that's why was, we as an American society we really value this. That's why we have institutionalized uh, two weeks off <laughs> of vacation time per year. We really value. Yeah, like this and, this work life balance of fifty weeks to two weeks at a full time salary position. Sorry for wage based employees. Yeah, well, I was going to say that two week that two week vacation is only if you're able to be one of the lucky ones who gets one of the prestige jobs that yeah. gives you two weeks paid yeah. vacation. Um cuz not all do. So anyway, the the impetus was really put on the American worker to listen, you've got to find a way to troubleshoot all this, okay? You can have it all. You can do it all. You can be it all. Um and if you're not 
there's something wrong with you, and you need to find a way to fix that for yourself. Right. Um, whatever that looks like. And y- since it was the 80s, I guess, I mean, I think a lot of it was partying, drugs. Cocaine, which just well, invented. Um, <laughs> something plastic. A lot of plastic things, yeah. I think. That was part of the 80s, too. Anyway, and some bright colors. But that— You guys have seen American Psycho. You get it. <laughs> you the get 80s. it. It was the 80s, you know. Weekend but, at Bernie's. <laughs> the problem Mannequin. is you, but the solution is you. So there's the good news. Just troubleshoot you, and you'll be able to survive in this system, and it's great. Um, now, initially— the this was not really aimed at doctors, even though it, it came from a psychologist and working in a free clinic. And so you would think that, like, application to medicine would be obvious. A lot of this was originally thought to apply to everybody else. Like, well, doctors don't seem to say they have this problem. Um, they don't talk about it. They don't complain. They never ask for help. So mm-hmm. they must not need it, right? Um and it really that is that is I should say like baked into the job. You are trained not to complain, not to ask for help. You are praised for your ability to withhold pleasure from yourself and not even just pleasure like you brag about how long you've gone without peeing in a shift. You brag about how long it's been since you've eaten something. You brag about how many cups of black coffee you drank last night to get through the night of call you were on. You brag about how little care you're taking of yourself. And so the idea that you would ever, like, admit, like, hey, um, I'm not, you know, I need help. Well, no, of course you wouldn't. Of course. And so initially, like, the idea of um, burnout was being applied to all other sorts of workers. Physicians were kind of behind in that. Like, oh, no, we don't. We don't experience that because if you did admit it, and this gets into, and I'll talk about it a little more at the end, the, the Vox article that just came out, if you did admit it, you could lose respect. You could be passed over for promotions. Patients won't trust you anymore. They won't They won't have faith in you. Um, and then there's like if you would, uh, heaven forbid, admit to actually having some sort of mental illness, I mean, you could lose your job. So, you know, for all those reasons, burnout comes into the American consciousness and it takes a while for doctors to be part of that. Hmm. And I want to tell you about how it came to be among doctors. But before I do that, well, yeah. let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes. Smoothies, they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly 
delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So you guys are finally ready to admit that you're human like the rest of us, huh? So, <laughs> yes. And it in helper, in what uh, Freudenberger called helper professions, this is always a risk, right? If you're in one of the jobs where, like, helping people is sort of the thing, that is the thing that you do. There's always this risk. But it it was really the transformation of the American medical system into what it is today, this sort of bloated, faceless, money-making system that has nothing to do with the people taking care or the people getting care, right? Like that transformation is what pushes us into where we are now. Do, okay, I have a, a chicken and egg question for you before we get, and maybe this would be more, more appropriate later, and in which case, let me know. Do you think that the, 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 the state of the American healthcare system is causing this physician burnout issue? Or do you think that the prioritization of this like, all work, no complaining, by a bear down and grin and bear whatever you get. Do you think that that attitude, which is so prevalent amongst physicians, in some ways enabled this this system to become something that like does not care about the people, individual people within it? I think it's tough to know which one was the bigger driver because I think they're both responsible for it. I mean – Physicians are uniquely susceptible. I shouldn't say uniquely, but we are definitely among those who are uniquely susceptible to this sort of um, situation because we do – a lot of us tend to be type A, high achieving, like we have perfectionist, um, driven to succeed to the point of of self-detriment. I mean I think that that is definitely – but why is that part of medicine? And why is that the kind of doctor you want? 
because even that question, I mean, I have I have gotten to that. Like, why does that why does that make someone a better physician? I don't know that it necessarily does. So I think it's all like I think this system created people who go into medicine who fit that sort of archetype. And mm-hmm. maybe that's not even the best suited for medicine. Yeah. Um, it's maybe the best suited for the medical system that we've created. Yeah. Because it, it is so damaging. Yeah. But is that, like, if we're talking about the, just go to the root of it, the idea of a healer, is that the best person to be a healer? I don't know. I don't know anymore. I mean, I think it's all gotten so lost in there. And I say that as somebody who I would, who probably is, I mean, I know I'm a perfectionist. I know I am incredibly demanding on myself and put myself last in the hierarchy of, like, who gets care. So yeah. I, I am one of those people, and I don't know that I am the best. <laughs> suited for that. Um, But to go back to where we were in the story, the reason that like it became more well-known among physicians is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, Dr. Christina uh, Maslach, who had been responsible for it. Do you remember the Stanford prison experiment? Yes. She ended it. Oh, good. Well, she encouraged one of the investigators that she ended up marrying later. She told him like, this sucks. You need to stop. (laughs) This is a bad idea. So she that is the, in, in history that this is who this is. Uh, she was interested in the response of an individual to chronic stress in a workplace environment, and she began surveying healthcare workers. Um, what she found uh, was, and at this point, there was, she actually interviewed somebody in an, another job that I would say is stressful, poverty law. Yeah. And uh, they referred to it as, well, we just call it burnout. And she said, yeah, that's what it is. It's burnout. And all these healthcare workers also have burnout. So she published articles outlining the prin- the three principles of burnout and recognizing their existence in lots of different professions, including in healthcare. Right. Um, and it's a combo of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a lack of a feeling of accomplishment. So basically, I get home drained, I don't care about what I do there, and I never help anyone anyway. And that's the feeling that you eventually get from from the jobs that you do. And she would go on to create the – there's an inventory that you can use, a burnout inventory where you basically – you can find the the PDF of it if you're interested in what it is free online, but I think you actually have to pay to get it, like, scored (laughs) to figure out. Um, And you've probably – if you're in any of the sorts of jobs that might experience burnout at higher rates, you may have done this before because, like, an employer can hand it out to all their employees and do it and see, like – are you all burnt out? And it asks you a bunch of questions about like how happy you are with your job and do you ever feel like you do a good job and do you ever just feel like I don't care anymore? Like I feel disconnected from the work I do and the people I care for and all that stuff. Um, And again, it implies to a lot of different fields, but we're focusing on medicine. With the complete transformation of the American medical system throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, you began to see more and more healthcare providers talking about burnout, experiencing burnout, admitting to, hey, all that stuff you're talking about, that's me. Like, I feel that now. And I'm feeling it so intensely that I can't hide it anymore. And so I'm saying it. So all that was great, right? Recognition. There's a problem. That's the first step. We found a problem. But in terms of what we do for that problem, I think that's where things have really uh, gone off the rails. Because in many workplaces, what the the treatment for this, the form that is taken is what are called wellness initiatives. Mm. Um, so uh, your wellness initiatives at your workplace could look a lot of different ways, right? Um, on TikTok, I, they like to joke about this a lot. 
Ah. That you ask for like better wages or like paid vacation or like, um, um, you know, parental leave and things like that, and they give you a pizza party. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a doctor, but like a pizza party does sound pretty good. I, that sounds like a joke, but it it's really what it feels like. Um, so there's not a pizza party. Well, I mean, I haven't. I mean, they don't, I don't know why I've you're getting me worked a, up about a I've never had a pizza happening. party, but, like, they do give you, like, here's a gift certificate to a fancy restaurant. I mean, I've gotten that. Nice. But, like, we'll do your laundry or we'll give you gift cards for meals or spas or massages or something like that, right? Like, we'll, we'll do keep, something. We'll a basket of snacks out. During, um, I thought this was, and, and this was very kind, but I thought this was a good, during the pandemic, a lot of the medical students started volunteering to, like, run errands for the physicians to help them out since they were so stressed and overwhelmed um which like it probably did help during the pandemic but like this is the kind of thing that we're usually offered uh I, the classic example is how can we make this workplace better you provide as he- the healthcare workers provide a list of like we we need more people in this job we need to hire more of this kind of person we need more of these services the weekends it's so we're so strapped we need more support on the weekends we need more social workers whatever right like we ask for all these different things that would make the facility run better and what we're given is like a better physician's lounge right you know i mean you get coffee refills more like that kind of thing um and then, and then they again this focus on work life balance. Like, well, the problem is you're just not prioritizing your off time the way you prioritize your work time. So, just when you go off, when you leave, you just really need to turn off Duh. and you know, and like be at home. Which, as anyone who's in healthcare right now is screaming, but what about all the notes in the electronic health record that I still haven't finished that I have to do? And what about the fact that I've got thirty different patients to call back because I hadn't had time to call them all day and they're all waiting to hear from me and I've got to call all these people. And what about the fact that like people get sick on the evenings and weekends and you can't turn all that off. Um, But again, it's still the impetus is on you. Drink more water then. We'll exercise more then. We'll spend more time with your kids and family then. Like, you know, oh, and also take some me time and get plenty of sleep. And they, like, they lecture you on these things, and they tell you to do all these things, and then they give you a coupon to a restaurant and say, like, are you well? Are you better? (laughs) Did we fix you? And it takes the focus off of the problem. And I think that is where we are finally getting to, to today, and I think that Vox article sort of spoke to it indirectly, but I think that this is, this is where we are headed. Um, All of this takes the focus off of the system as the problem and puts it on the person who is suffering under the system to deal with that suffering better. Can I stop you for a second? Mm-hmm. I've been kind of, before you go further, um, uh, I've been a little more quiet this episode listening to you because um, I have found it personally sort of disturbing. To what extent were you the way you are before you got into this system and how much of it has... You don't do this on a day-to-day basis in this particular system. You're a doctor every day, but you're not in this system every day. You have, you know, weeks where you do it, weeks where you don't. But, like, do you feel – how much do you feel – how much of the way you are do you feel like is a result of being in the system? Because a lot of times you you do feel like you haven't done anything and you do feel like you haven't – 
achieve stuff and that you're you haven't done anything worthwhile and that you don't need help and et cetera, et cetera. How much of it do you feel like is a, is a holdover from being in the system and how much of it's just inbuilt? I think that um, my drive to always like achieve more and do more, I think is part of me because that predates medicine. I think that's just part of who I am. And probably part of why I chose medicine is because I was led to believe that's where people like me belong, right? Like I had lots of messages that like, oh, you should be a doctor because you do that stuff and blood doesn't make you pass out. Um, But I think like the fact that I never feel like I have done anything, no matter how much I do, I I have to feel, I mean, I I think it's a result of this. I, I feel like there was a time in my life where I knew I had achieved things, like where I could accept praise and feel good and I, I mean, it's been so long, I don't remember that anymore. I don't mean this in a self-pitying way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have to imagine it's the system. Because no matter how much you do in the system, that you haven't done enough. And there's always someone you didn't help. No matter how hard you work. I mean. And you know, it's funny, I say you're not in the system anymore, but. It's only, <laughs> I only mean that in the sense that you're not going to the hospital every day. Because you are still in this system. It's bigger. It's bigger than it's bigger. the hospital. It is. Because if, if and I think maybe this is why they first started noticing this concept in the quote unquote helper professions, is that if you are in doing work that, for instance, a lot of the work I do these days is volunteer, it's unpaid work, to try to help people that I would argue society has um, not ever tried to help or at least has stopped short of ever actually doing anything for and has left behind and has abandoned, um, you learn pretty quickly that there is never going to be enough support or resources or people doing that work to really make big, giant, fundamental change. And it becomes, you know, I mean, it, it you, you feel like you can't win. And for someone like myself, <laughs> who goes at everything with the intention of winning and being the best and being, you know, at the top of my whatever I can achieve at this, um, you learn pretty quickly that you can't. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. And and I know I'm not alone in this. There are a lot of people who do this kind of good, hard work for people that society left behind that um, that they feel the same way, I'm sure. I know they do. I talk to them. But that I think that's where we're going at this point is um, the concept of resilience it comes into this a lot, into these conversations that you need um, health care providers specifically to be resilient. And if you really think about what that means, what we're saying is this job will traumatize you. It's like a natural disaster, and we need you to be able to come back from it and work again. Why? Like, why does it? why is it constructed that way then? Because it's not just the the things you might encounter providing health care, the, the things that are just part of the work, right? Like sometimes people are sick and it's sad and sometimes you lose patients and it's sad. I mean everything else, all the other parts of it that aren't, you know, that there can be trauma from medical work. There shouldn't be trauma from the American medical system. Um, and I think, I think that's why, like, the conversation, especially right before COVID, was getting pretty dire. Um the word that I tend to use now instead of burnout, or the two words I should say, is moral injury. That is what I feel like 
myself and many, many, many other people have sustained at the hands of this inherently immoral system where I went into it with the earnest intention of helping others, of I I want to learn these skills so that I might be able to keep someone from dying and give them a better quality of life and help them, you know, achieve whatever their whatever their goals are by keeping them well or advising them so that they can stay well, those kinds of things. Um, but the, the system is not built to do that, right? Because the system, a lot of people will say that the American medical system is broken. And I always push back against that because it's not. It's not broken. It's working exactly the way it was built to work. It's but, evil. No, it's immoral. <laughs> it is. Well, it's because it's it, immoral. It's an immoral it's a system business. functioning properly. And and when it comes to a business that is meant to make money, it's not it's not about serving you the patient or me the physician. It's about making money for other people, for a third party. And it does that. I mean, in spades it does that, right? Like it makes uh, untold amounts of money for that third party that's always in the exam room with you quietly that you don't you don't recognize. It harms you, the patient. It harms me, the provider. And it puts us at odds with each other. Constantly, we're at odds with each other um, because that's the way they want it. Because then it keeps both of us from turning and looking at the third party and saying, why are you making so much money off of our suffering? Yeah, we, we you know, we don't talk about this enough, but like we we go really hard on alternative therapies and homeopathy and a lot of like woo woo crap. And I think that that is, I mean, that's been part of society since the beginning, since the dawn of time, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. But I think that a lot of it is a reaction, is a direct reaction to how crummy the American medical system is writ large, right? I mean, it, it 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 is it's a it's part of it it's part of the broken system mm-hmm. i mean it feels absolutely terrible to look at someone and say i know what therapy you need but i also know your insurance won't cover it and i have no way to get it to you so i'm going to recommend something that is not as good and i know it's not going to help you as much as it could and money is the reason for all of this I mean, and it, it's worse for the patient. I'm not saying it's worse for me. Of course, it's worse for the person who's suffering. But when you do that day in and day out, eventually, you know, it's not just a feeling that you're never really helping. It's the knowledge. I'm not mm. really helping because a, a, a lid as to how much I can do for people has been put on this. And I just have to struggle underneath it. Mm-hmm. And that that is really uh, this this idea was being talked about a lot. And then when COVID happened, it's the same always like, well, but we we really need you to be fine right now. We need you to be mentally healthy and we need you to not be burnt out. So we're just going to pretend like you're not Mm -hmm. so that you can do all this work. And then when this whole thing's over, maybe we'll talk about it again. And I think maybe that's why, especially with um, the increase in like physicians admitting to depression and and other psychiatric diseases um, in the wake of COVID has maybe brought the spotlight back on it because that, and that's what that Vox article talks about is like physicians. I mean, statistically, should at least be suffering mental illness at the same rate as the general public. We believe that their rates of depression are higher. The rates of suicide are at least equal, but again, we believe they're higher, just underreported. And 
the the fact is that physicians are less likely to seek care because of fear uh, of what that will do to their career. And if you lose the ability to be a doctor, it's so linked with, for a lot of us, I'm not saying this is every single physician, but I know it's true for me, it is so linked with who I am as a person, not just my job, but like who I am inside, that if I couldn't do it anymore, it would be, I mean, it would it, it would be devastating. And I think that many physicians feel the same way. And so, you know, there are all sorts of ways that like places have found uh, to sort of skirt the idea that you're getting care while secretly giving you care, getting like secret therapy that isn't therapy that will call literally anything but therapy to try to help people create well, like support well, groups that aren't support groups and call them something else so that no one ever has to report that they received any care because they're so afraid. And it's not true. Let's, let's take it back to Dr. Freudenberger, who you complimented for this, for this, like, I'm going to record my thoughts and then play them back and... Oh, I'm not saying it's healthy. No, I'm but just you saying know what I he's understand do- you it. know what yeah. he's doing. He's doing therapy. Yes. On I mean on himself. To avoid though actually getting therapy. Yes. And I know a lot of a lot of people in the healthcare system will do that because yeah. and it's not true like part of it isn't based on reality. Like and you can read that I would recommend you read that Vox article if you're interested in this. But um not in every state do you have to report just because you like saw a therapist or went on an antidepressant or something. That's not that's not necessarily true in every state. There are states where it is very true. They can ask you all of those intrusive questions. When you sign to get privileges at a hospital, you give permission for them to go through your medical records in some cases. And so they can go through all of those and say, oh, we don't want to hire you because you see a therapist. We don't want to hire you because you're on this medication. Or Certainly for physicians who may have to seek inpatient psychiatric care, that that is very stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to say we would never hire you. But the reality is there are going to be systems in which you won't be hired if you have sought that care. And part of it is perception. Part of it is the reality. Um, like physicians believe it's much worse than it is. Part of it is, no, they do judge you on that. Um, but either way, we have to find a way to make it okay for doctors to ask for help, all healthcare providers, not just doctors, we have to find a way to make it okay for them to receive that help so that they continue to do the job that they're doing because as it stands, it seems like the people who have the power to change this terrible system aren't doing it. I mean, not currently anyway. But that, I mean, that that is the way that we make it better. And all of it has to change. I mean, medical training has to change. Residency is all about how hard can you push yourself. Yeah, I remember um, that. They, I mean, they, they've done some of these studies, and they talk about them in the article, about um, how many residents report, like, burnout or depression or any of these things, and the numbers are astronomical because residency um, makes you question everything you ever wanted in life and, you know, think about quitting everything. Um, we called them, I mean, we called them the crying times that every resident hits a point where they go into the crying times, which is when you start thinking, like, I can never help anybody. I can never do anything good. I'm I'm done with everything. And you start researching, what can I do with a, this degree that I got that isn't being a doctor because it's so hard? And, like, if you think about it, and I'm just realizing this, we called it the crying times. It was depression. And 
we still come up with euphemisms for it so that we don't have to admit that we experience psychiatric illness at the hands of this system. Do you feel like there are times in your life where you would have been well served to seek out therapy that you avoided it? Yes. Oh, I know. Oh, 100%. Well, I mean, I think I talked about it when we talked about um, postpartum depression. I know, but I feel like we didn't focus enough on you saying, like, you were right, Justin. I should have done what you said. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, I I definitely, I knew I needed, I knew, I mean, I had the clear thought, I need help with this postpartum depression, and uh, I am afraid to seek it because I still want to be a doctor when I go, like, eventually, (laughs) I you know, when this maternity leave ends, I would like to be a doctor again. And, um, yeah, I mean... And I'd say there are a lot of people in healthcare who would say the same thing. And in that article, they talk about that, that, you know, that there are lots of people who, if they felt that they could access care, they would. Um, but everything has to change you- around it. It's not just the system and it's not just the doctors. Like, I will say the same thing I have had when I went on leave to have our children, the idea that a doctor would take time off to have a baby and care for that baby for some period of time, the resentment from my colleagues, from my staff, from my patients, from everybody was so huge. Um, The expectation that I would come straight back and start doing my job again because that's what you do. And, again, I don't think that's just doctors. I think that's capitalism. Yeah, right. um, I don't know. But that that is where that is the origin of burnout and this is where we are today. I'm hoping that in the wake of COVID we can start having these conversations again because um it would serve patients better if you had healthy doctors. And right now I don't I don't know how many of us are healthy. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm not. But what did I have to do though? <laughs> what did I have to do? You're not saying the, you're not what? I'm not saying I'm not healthy. Uh, you're not saying you're saying you're healthy? I'm saying I'm healthy. Okay. I'm Men- saying I'm mentally. fine right now. You're saying you're fine right now. I'm fine right now. Now, can we flash back to uh, 20 <laughs> minutes ago when you said you're incapable of feeling like you've done a good job for the day, but still you resolutely refuse to seek out any sort of therapy whatsoever. I have Explain people that I, to I me. Because I've been to. holding back saying that for like a half hour, and it's making me feel a little loopy. So if you could just kind of adjust, pretend I'm a Sawbones listener, like address this for me, please, because there's an obvious dichotomy, there's an obvious uh, contradiction in what? your in your actions. Here is what I'm I- saying you are you are a, you are still a part of the problem as you sit here in front of me today. What I am saying is, and I have said this to many of my colleagues, and I always feel really guilty about saying it. The When I was working nonstop doing outpatient and inpatient medicine before I backed away from that, um, and I was working 60 hours a week probably, and then trying to also be your wife and a mom mm. and a podcaster, I guess, and like a human, just a mm. person on earth. Um, the, I got to a point where I didn't understand why I was doing any of it anymore, right? Like, right. Why, why is this, what, how is this possibly what I chose? Now that I am doing my inpatient job and I am doing my volunteer work and I have so much more time to be at home with our family, to do our show and feel like I can put the time into it to do a good job with it, I am much happier I am much more at peace. I'm not saying that like you can get rid. I mean, you can't get rid of trauma in a year or two. Yeah, it takes longer um, to work through all of that. 
But I have been lucky that I can do that and I can have these other things in my life. A lot of my friends and colleagues cannot. Um, the I mean, and what I'm getting to is like the student loans. Yeah. The, the student loans that people are saddled with, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, they're stuck. And I know they're suffering. I do feel like some survivor's guilt sometimes because I feel like I have been able to distance myself just enough from it that I can still be a doctor and take care of people, but I don't have to be at the mercy of the system in the way that a lot of my my colleagues still do. And it, it makes me very sad, but I don't know. It's so big. Yeah. It's also big. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sawbones. Uh, uh, thank you to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Hey, we did a uh, live show. We couldn't mention it last week because we didn't have an episode. We did a live show, uh, a virtual live show. If you go to, you can still watch it. It was live last week, but you can still watch it. Bit.ly forward slash MBMBAM virtual. Uh, and uh, you can, I think for another, I don't know. 10 days as you're listening to this. I can't say exactly, but you could, you could uh, listen to it. So go check it out. It's about TikTok uh, health trends. It was fun. Uh, a little lighter than this particular. Episode. Much lighter. Just a little bit. Uh, thank you so much for listening until next time. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.